to thank the, the music team for all of their hard work in leading us in corporate worship. That's a difficult task. And I appreciate them. I appreciate uh, Rod for leading the group this month while we've been going through Ruth. Uh, his willingness and his skill in doing that. And uh, they do it skillfully. The psalm says to, uh, to play on your harp skillfully, doesn't it? And uh, they do that every week. They work hard, and I appreciate their hard work in, in leading us in music. Let's never take that for granted and uh, take, that, take advantage of that. We need to uh, thank them for that. Last week, we talked about the fact that hope was delayed for Ruth. We're in Ruth once again in chapter 4, and once again, Ruth found herself waiting. Earlier in the chapter, in chapter 3, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, had devised a plan. She had devised a bold plan. It was risky to go to Boaz on the threshing floor and to lie down at his feet and to make a marriage proposal there. Naomi knew that Boaz would be spending the night on the threshing floor in order to protect his crop from theft. So after the post-harvest celebration, Boaz goes, he lies down. Later, in the middle of the night, Ruth comes and lays at his feet. He wakes up startled and he says, who are you? She says, it is Ruth, your maidservant. And she told him, take your maidservant under your wing. Beautiful language. Take your maidservant under your wing. This was her marriage proposal. Boaz was overcome with emotion. He wanted to redeem Ruth. He loved her. Ruth loved him. But there was one issue. And it was that there was a closer redeemer than Boaz. That he would have to consult first. So he told her, lie down until morning and wait. Which had to be very difficult. I'm sure Ruth was tired of waiting at this point. She got home to Naomi. And unfortunately, Naomi had the same counsel. Wait. She told her in verse 18 at the end of the chapter, end of chapter 3, when she returned home to Naomi, she had... She said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And this is where we find ourselves. At the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, the author says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. So here in 
verse 1, the author says that Boaz went up to the gate, a place where legal matters were transacted, and it says, Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. The author says, Behold. Beautiful. Here in this one word, we see another display of God's sovereignty, don't we? It's another one of those divine coincidences that we talked about back in chapter 2 and we alluded to last week. Behold, pay attention, look. God's power is being shown here in the fact that this close relative would pass by at this very moment. Amazing. Boaz said to the man, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He calls him friend. The author doesn't give the man's name. He simply calls him friend. But that Hebrew word here is interesting. It's the word translated, it's a rhyming phrase, poloni almoni. And it just simply means a certain unnamed person or place. So Boaz brings the matter to the attention of the certain unnamed man. He informs him that Naomi has to sell the piece of land. In fact, the Hebrew language, the tense of the Hebrew seems to say that it was already in the works. Naomi was desperate. They were poor. The man hears about the land. He hears about this opportunity to purchase it. And he says, yes, I will redeem it. But as we said in the last few weeks... The issue of redemption and levirate marriage were two distinct issues. And when presented with the fact that he would also acquire Ruth and be responsible for providing a child, he backs out of the deal. He said that it would jeopardize his own inheritance, meaning that bringing another child into the picture would make the issue of inheritance just more hazy. It's just more difficult, more trouble than it's worth. It could also be that he feared that all the land, which at first blush seemed like such a good investment opportunity, when the child came of age, it would just go back to him. Not such a good investment anymore. But, looking at the specifics of the matter, this was not literal levirate marriage. So in a sense, he wasn't really bound by the law in that way. It was more levirate-like. But... It appears that it was a serious enough breach on this man's character for the author to leave him unnamed. Mr. Poloni Almoni, a certain unnamed man, Mr. No Name, so and so. But Boaz had no concern for investment. Boaz had no concern for investment strategies. Even though he wasn't obligated to, he wanted to care for Ruth. He wasn't bound by the law of Leveret any more than this man was. He was simply merciful and gracious and wanted to redeem her because he loved her. He didn't care about his bank account. He wasn't wrangling over the issues of his stock portfolio. He wasn't trying to crunch the numbers to make sure it would all work out. He simply just wanted to redeem Ruth. Amazing. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their checkbook. The author continues in verse 7 by saying, Now this was the custom in former 
times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the matter of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So the man said, buy it for yourself. Then he removed his sandal, symbolizing that he was renouncing his right to the land and renouncing his right to Ruth. It was now official. Redemption was complete. But it wasn't just complete and official. It was public. His redemption of Ruth was a very public issue for all to see. There were eyewitnesses, plenty of eyewitnesses. Really going beyond what the law required. Plenty of eyewitnesses to Ruth's redemption. The author says in verse 11 that all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then they gave them a blessing. And listen to this blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. So they blessed the couple. And this is important because their intercession symbolized the importance of community. It symbolized the importance of blessing in those days, something that we don't do that we really should do. Blessing was very important. May the Lord fill your home with children. May the Lord give you what you need. May the Lord bless you. Moreover, verse 12 says, may your house be like that of Perez. This was their blessing. Son of Tamar and Judah. Long story short, but Perez was a twin. He was the son of Judah and Tamar, supposed to be the second born twin. But when it came time for delivery, his sibling Zerah, almost being out of the womb, appearing to be the firstborn, pulled back and Perez came out first. So Perez, supposed to be a second born, came out first, therefore named breach or breakthrough. It's all outlined in Genesis 38. And in the genealogies, it's not Zerah's line that continues, but it's that of Perez. Even in Matthew 1, 3, beginning of the Gospels, both children appear in the lineage of Jesus as children of Tamar and Judah. But there again, it's only that of Perez that continues. For God's own reasons, he chose Perez To be the firstborn apart from human reasoning. He blesses Perez. An unlikely recipient of firstborn blessings. Sound familiar? So the blessing for Boaz and Ruth is that their children. And that their children's children. 
would be blessed, that their lineage would be blessed. How awesome, because as we'll see, that's exactly what happens. The author says in verse 13 that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. I love that language. And she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I love verse 14. It was on our screen when you entered. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it's beautiful and it's a great summation of all that's happened up to this point. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. Naomi has experienced the goodness of the Lord. She has learned by experience the beauty of God's sovereignty. And this is one of the wonderful themes of the book of Ruth. Life, life is hard, marked by intense difficulty. But in the end, God's goodness is clearly seen. And Ruth and Naomi experienced that. In fact, God was going to do stuff that they couldn't see. And that's what we see next. Look. Verse 16. Look how the author finishes this. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor, the neighbor women gave him a name. That's interesting. Saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez to Perez was born Hezron and to Hezron was born Ram and to Ram Amenadab and to Amenadab was born Nashon and to Nashon Salmon and to Salmon was born Boaz and to Boaz Obed and to Obed was born Jesse and to Jesse David. It's beautiful how the author backs up and gives us the whole picture there. We see in this genealogy the beauty of God's sovereignty. But not only that, we also see the beauty of covenant love. That's what it shows us. God's love displayed. And we've already seen that by God's grace, he brought Ruth in through his mercy into his covenant. A Moabite, someone who was an alien, a stranger, undeserving of his grace and mercy, he brings her in. But look at the genealogy. Ruth isn't alone here. Perez is listed in this lineage. Boaz is listed in this lineage. And both are a picture of God's sovereignty and love. In the same way, as we said earlier in weeks past, Boaz is the son of Rahab and Salmon. Salmon's listed here. Rahab's not. Rahab was Salmon's wife. And Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. In coming to know the Lord, she hid the spies in her home before the fall of Jericho. And the Bible says that she had heard of the mighty things that God, the God of Israel, had done for his people since they left the land of Egypt. And so she knew the Lord. She hid the spies. She was saved and she lived in the camp of Israel for the rest of her life. 
We said earlier that Perez was a twin of Zerah and that he was the child of Judah and Tamar. But it's interesting how the baby was conceived. Tamar was Judah's Canaanite daughter-in-law. And when her husband died, when Tamar's husband died, she sought to carry on the family name. But no one would help. So she resorted to prostitution, deception, and incest. She tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into having relations with her. And so Perez was born. So hardly anyone that is a picture of virtue that you would want in your king's lineage. Even in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But he's here. He's here along with Ruth, an outcast, a Gentile, along with Boaz, the son of a Gentile prostitute. He's here. This genealogy is a portrait of God's grace. The point is this, that God, God can take anybody. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what nation, what color, what economic status, he can take whoever he wants and bring them into his covenant. It's beautiful. Look at what he did with Naomi. He restored her. He he redeemed Ruth. He didn't leave Naomi in Moab. He didn't leave her there. She returned. She returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and love and salvation. He's the great redeemer. He's the great restorer. He can bind that which is broken and he can restore that which seems lost. And Naomi has learned firsthand what it means to be restored. Ruth has learned firsthand what it means to be redeemed. Boaz proved Faithful as the Goel, as the kinsman redeemer. But as with other types and shadows in the Bible, Boaz foreshadows the future redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And if we miss this, we've missed everything regarding the book of Ruth. We have to get that. Ultimately, the picture... In the book of Ruth is that of redemption, of salvation, of covenant and redeeming love. Ruth is a picture of the church. Boaz is the picture of Christ. Jesus fulfills his role as our kinsman redeemer in every way that Boaz did. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the important part right here. I'm going to give you five ways that Jesus fulfilled his role as kinsman redeemer. First... He fulfilled this role by being a close relative. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.17. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus became one of us so he could be a substitute for us. And this really gets to the heart of the atonement. Because if you ask yourself, 
Why did it have to happen that way? Why, why Jesus? Why come in the form of a man and die such a bloody, brutal murder? Why did it have to happen that way? Because only God could bear the wrath of the Father for the sins of the world. And only a close relative could be a substitute for us. Only a man could substitute for us. Jesus had to be made like us in order to be a substitute for us. He perfectly fulfilled his kinsman redeemer role in this way. Boaz was a close relative. Jesus is a close relative. Amen. Secondly, as we've stated so clearly in weeks past, Jesus has all the necessary resources for redemption. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Peter gets even more specific. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So first, Jesus is a close relative. Second, Jesus has the necessary resource for redemption, namely his blood. And what does Hebrews say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Redemption. And third, in the way that Boaz was completely willing to purchase Ruth's freedom, so Christ willingly purchased our freedom. And this is where the skeptics of substitutionary atonement really miss it. Jesus wasn't forced to purchase our freedom. He wasn't forced to pay the ransom price. He wasn't forced to go to the cross. He did it willingly. Jesus willingly went and willingly paid the ransom for our release. When sin entered the world with Adam, in God's holiness, he delivered the penalty of physical and spiritual death. Complete separation. So now, we don't choose to sin. We're born into it. That's not complete. We do choose to sin. But ultimately, we're born into it. Let's say it that way. The sin of Adam. And the only hope for deliverance would be for God to send a substitute. And that's the point of the Old Testament sacrifices. That's the point of Leviticus as you read Leviticus. In the book of Exodus, you clearly get a picture of God's wrath towards sin. In Leviticus, you see the remedy for that. Temporal, but it's a remedy. It's the shedding of the sacrifice. And what was it doing? It was averting God's wrath. Now, it... It was rolling it forward until the final sacrifice, until the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But through that sacrifice, God's wrath was being averted. There was a remedy. The priests could never sit down. They were constantly offering sacrifices. But the only ultimate answer would be the final sacrifice. God, because of his justice, here we go with another character thing of God. God in his justice couldn't just wink at sin. It's a character thing with God. He's holy, so he couldn't overlook it. 
But praise God. He's loving. Willing to become like those he would redeem. Willing to become a man and willing to be a substitute for man. So only God could receive his own punishment. Only man could serve as a substitute. And it was always this plan. God wasn't reacting to mistakes. This was always his plan. And he did it willingly. This was not cosmic child abuse. See what Jesus says in John ten eighteen, And you knew I was going here. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So as Boaz was completely willing to redeem Ruth, you see it so clearly. So Christ willingly redeemed his church. Fourth, in the way that Boaz marries Ruth, so Christ marries the church. What does Paul say in Ephesians about this? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And skipping down in that passage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he finishes up by saying something that's just really amazing. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to not marriage. It refers to Christ and the church. So Paul finishes this passage by telling us that marriage is meant to show the union of Christ to his church. Not the other way around. And this has pretty big implications. We're confident that Christ won't leave us. We're confident that he won't abandon us. Even though we commit spiritual adultery daily. He remains faithful. His marriage covenant to us is firm. What does he say in Hebrews 13, 5? The author of Hebrews quotes, God is saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. His covenant to us is firm. And it's difficult to grasp the depth of this because we use love so randomly. We use the word love so willy-nilly. I mean, for us, it can mean anything to I love an apple, to I love a car, to I love my wife, to I love God. And it makes the whole thing really hazy. But love in this passage in Ephesians 5 is displayed by sacrifice. You may think you love someone. But until you're sacrificially living for that person, you haven't achieved the love 
in this passage. Love is displayed through sacrifice. Christ's love was displayed through his death and his marriage to his bride. Christ married the church. So first, Jesus is a close relative. Second, Jesus has the necessary resource for redemption, namely his blood. Third, Jesus was willing to purchase his bride. Fourth, Jesus married the church. And fifth, as Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi from the bondage of slavery, so Christ redeems his people in the same way. See, redemption deals with the issue of bondage. It's our freedom from the bondage of guilt, sin, and death that Jesus purchased with his blood. So notice what Paul teaches in Titus 1.14. Listen to this. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from what? From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you get that? To redeem us from what? From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In redemption, Christ breaks the power of sin. Now let's. Let's examine ourselves here. As a body and as individuals, let's examine ourselves. Because many presume on God's grace. If you are in our home Bible fellowship study, our author last semester spent plenty of time talking about this. People presuming on God's grace. And that's what many do. Assuming because we do righteous things, because we go to church, maybe go to a very strong church, because we have experienced things in our past, maybe walking an aisle, signing a card, praying a prayer, some great emotional experience. Maybe we read books on theology. Maybe we hang out with... What we consider like super believers. Like, you know, we feel holy because we hang out with holy people a lot of times. Maybe you are married to a strong believer. And in some way you're presuming on God's grace with that. Maybe your parents are strong believers and because of that you're presuming on God's grace because of that. Making you feel secure when possibly the overwhelming evidence is that there's no restraint on sin. No repentance. No struggle. Sin is habitual. Not followed by brokenness and repentance. But it's often, it's completely willful. And with no restraint due to the Spirit's work. And yet the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that the Spirit's application of Christ's work 
is effectual. It changes who we are. It changes our whole DNA, our whole spiritual DNA. You look completely different. Redemption causes a changed life. Redemption breaks the power of sin in a believer. Through Jesus' death, we are free. We're no longer ravaged and beat up by it. Satan no longer has a hold over the believer. That's what Jesus' redemption does for us. And his blood is the ransom price. God himself set the price for redemption. And then he stepped down from heaven to receive his own death sentence. I love the language of Ephesians 1.7. We have redemption through his blood. In repenting, in yielding, in submitting your life to Christ, in Him being Lord, He makes you free. That's what it means to receive Him. So Ruth was no longer an alien. Ruth was no longer a citizen of Moab. She has come under the wing of the God of Israel. And she is free. She's come to Boaz, forsaking all her gods and all her other idols. She's come to her Redeemer by God's sovereign hand. She came to his threshing floor, the place of decision, the place of judgment, the place of sacrifice, the place of worship. And she's been found innocent based on the sovereign, redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And this was Jesus' mission. This was his ministry. Jesse read it earlier, and I'll read it from Mark 10:45. This is the summation of everything that we've talked about. Jesus says in Mark 10:45, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." That's Christ's mission. And that's how he fulfills the book of Ruth. That's his love displayed. Music team, let's come on up and let's respond in worship through music. The only response to this issue of redemption is Jesus, thank you. Thank you. So let's stand together. Feasting on these words. The beauty of the cross, I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, suffered for me, bled and died. Let's sing together.